The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Uh, we're looking at one of the great um, magisterial passages of the entire New Testament. And let me, first of all, just give you the big, big picture, because actually later in the passage, there's some very debatable things, nothing that will affect the main point. To understand this passage, look at your Bible, go back to chapter 12, chapter 12, the last verse, and he says this, I will show you, notice the word show. In other words, he's about to demonstrate something in the 13th chapter. Your question will be, did he show you this? Did he demonstrate the more excellent path or the more excellent way? So, that's our big overarching theme. I'm going to show you a better way than what you have taken, which was this almost fanatical view of certain ecstatic spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, so they had this craving to see supernatural acts. They had actually changed the purpose of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts were to build up other people and to unite the congregation. Instead, they were using spiritual gifts to exalt self and to divide the congregation, the exact opposite of what they should have been doing. I actually think when the Corinthians got to this point, they must have been shocked because they were so proud of themselves. Uh, they were six times, we're told, puffed up, inflated in their ego. They had a superiority complex. And they were proud of their knowledge, and they were proud of these extraordinary experiences in tongues and word of knowledge, word of wisdom. And that had to be brought down to earth. I really think when they heard this, and remember this letter, all the letters would have been read publicly to the local assembly. When they got to this section, they must have been shocked. We had no idea that we missed. We were deficient. Here we are so proud of ourselves, and we are deficient in the most important virtue of the Christian life, which all these things which we prize so much actually are of no worth if it is not colored and motivated by love. This is a, a powerful passage for all of us to take our theology and our knowledge and all the things we're very, very proud about and put it in priority with the greatest of all things. So let's look at our passage here. There are three separate movements in this chapter, very easy to identify. The first is, verses 1 to 3, love is indispensable. Say that with me, indispensable. Didn't sound very enthusiastic. But do you believe that? Do you believe that? Love is indispensable to all your activities and all your gifts. Now, the second major movement is verses uh, 4 to 7, where he defines love. Well, if love is indispensable to everything we do, what must it be? Here we have 
the beautiful 15 descriptions of love. Now, I ordered uh, a whole carton full of these to give away free today. They never arrived. We'll find out why, but we'll handle it with a lot of love. Uh, if you would like one of these free, they are free to you. Let Lars know, and we'll get that to you. So the second movement is describing the indispensable nature of love. There's nothing like it, by the way, in the New Testament, and there's nothing like it in literature that actually gives us a definition of love. We'll have to move through these 15 descriptions quickly because they're really, they call for a whole sermon. Now, the third movement section of this is love never ends. And he'll pick up on what he started in verses 1 to 3, comparing love and the spiritual gift. So let's begin now looking at love is indispensable. It is the more excellent way. Everything he says from now on should be seen in light of, I'm showing you the more excellent path of the Christian life. So the first thing he says is this, Without love, even heavenly languages sound annoying. So, the purpose of tongues, the purpose of knowledge, the purpose of prophecy, the purpose of miracles is to edify, build up the church, and unite the church and be glorifying to God. But they're going to do the exact opposite. They're going to use some of these spectacular gifts to promote themselves, to puff up themselves, which in the end, caused in this church lots of division and hard feeling and jealousies. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says here. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and do not have love, I am, notice that I am, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He says, if I had the most extraordinary, I'm the world's greatest tongue speaker. I actually can speak with the tongues of angels. By the way, the tongues of men, tongues of angels, is a language. No one speaks babble and calls it language. The language of men and the language of angels. I'm sure angels have a language, but it's interesting. You can always listen to language and understand language. So there's this lady that lives right near her. She speaks Polish. And I see her almost every day on the trail. She's on the phone all the time. And she speaks Polish. You know, I can pick up. It's a language. It's a language. It has rhythm. It has a, 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 a style to it. And there's a repetition. You can identify. Oh, that's Polish. He is talking here, if I have the tongues, if I could speak all different languages, and even heavenly language. He's speaking in hyperbole. If I could do this. But it's not colored by love, motivated by love, directed and guided by love. Well, here's what I am. I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Notice he says, I am. Not just the tongue speaking. I am deficient. I am not what I should be. Something is missing in my life, although I have this extraordinary gift. I am not what I should be. Then the second thing he says here is, without love, knowing it all helps no one. Uh, but, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, notice the word all, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, notice this is hyperbole. He pushes everything to the extreme. 
so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So he's thinking now, hyperbole, for the sake of argument, I have extraordinary knowledge. Prophetic knowledge, mysterious knowledge. I know what everyone's been trying to figure out about theology, and I can untie all the knots in, of theology. I am a literal, walking, talking Bible encyclopedia. I have all knowledge. They were very intrigued with knowledge. This was actually a problem in the church. Pride of knowledge. You know what happens when you have pride of knowledge? Chapter 8 tells us knowledge puffs up the mind. You actually become an intellectual snob. You look down at other people. They don't know what I know. I have a PhD. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. A PhD. Oh, I have two PhDs. This is a real thing. Pride of status. Pride of degrees. But if I have all this knowledge and I have these deep insights and I do not have love, again, in very hyperbolic language, I'm nothing. All that I'm so proud about is nothing. Not in God's eyes. And then he moves next to faith. He says here, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He's a virtual George Mueller. He's an Abraham who believes God. He's a David who runs in and attacks Goliath or the lion and the bear. If I have powerful faith, I can move mountains. I can trust God. I'm a risk taker. I can raise millions of dollars. That's pretty impressive. A spiritual powerhouse. But if it's not marked by love, he says, it's zero. By the way, my glasses are being fixed right now. And I'm wearing glasses that are three prescriptions behind. It's a little hard for me to see today. I can see someone's out there. So if I'm looking down a lot, it's because... I can't see, but the light here is excellent. It's helping me a lot. All right, let's go on here. The next thing he says, without love, all right, without love, giving all of one's money to the poor is unprofitable. Wait, hold a second. Wouldn't it be by definition if I gave all my money? Wouldn't it be by definition, love? It would seem so. But that's the subtlety of this. You can give all that you have and it not be done in love. He postulates about giving away all his worth, worldly possessions, his home, his property, his furniture, his savings, the most cherished possessions, and he gives it to feed the poor. That is altruistic action. But here is what you need to listen to. You can actually do that, and it's not done with love. You say, well, how can that be possible? Well, we see this in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira, and they come, they sell land, and they take a portion of that money. They lie, though. They say, we're giving it all to Jesus. But they only gave part to Jesus. And even that would have been all right, Peter said. They hadn't lied about it. 
Why did they give the money to the poor? They gave it to gain prestige and status in the community. You see, they had seen Barnabas. Barnabas had sold land and given it, and he rose to great height. They weren't giving to the poor. They were giving to themselves. They were exalting themselves. And you can do this. This is what's so crazy. You can jump up in the meeting and give a great message to the Lord's Supper, and you can pray elegant words, but if it's all to exalt yourself and about me, 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 myself, and I, the unholy trinity, well, it's not done in love. And what does it count for you? Well, it's unprofitable. It's unprofitable. should have kept your money. You'd have done better that way. Should have gone out and had a nice meal. It's spiritual bankruptcy. It's unproductive. It's useless. It's worthless. It has no eternal value. Because it's not done with the right motivation. And God is always looking at the heart. He doesn't care if you give one million or 20 cents. If it's done out of a heart of compassion and love for the Lord and self-sacrifice, that's what God sees. That's the whole story of the widow's might, isn't it? She gives two pennies, and people come in and give fabulous amounts. And the Lord said, well, in proportion, she gave more. She gave all. These people only gave according to what they had. God is always looking at the heart, and love is from the heart. Something you can't see at times. Only God can. Now, next, five. Without love, ultimate sacrifice of one's life is pointless. Finally, Paul envisions himself as the ultimate hero of the faith. As an act of supreme sacrifice, he surrenders his body in the painful flames of martyrdom for Christ. Certainly, certainly such sacrifice would be acceptable to God. But my friends, you can do that. You can go to the mission field so that you're a hero. Uh, You're supported. You can say, "I'm, I'm a missionary. I'm a well-supported missionary. I've led thousands to Christ. I've built churches. This is so subtle. Some people take great pride in suffering for their faith. They're willing to die in order to be placed in the annals of church history. You don't think that's true? In the second and third century, there was almost this fanatical run into martyrdom. You know why? Because those who had been martyred for Christ had been exalted by the church. They had been highly, highly honored. Polycarp, who had been burned alive, it was said that his bones were more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold. And this gave his grave, became almost a sacred place for people to go to. You see, you can make this ultimate sacrifice, but it's all about yourself. In other words... The sacrifice is worth a sacrifice. Empty religious show. Hollow performance. Oh, we can be good at that. We can be good at this. Now, again, I want you to imagine what the Corinthians must have thought of this. Many people, when they come to this passage, they use it for uh, weddings. It's a beautiful romantic poem. But actually, this is divine instruction for a church in conflict. That's what it's written for. And it's written in great prophetic language, poetic language. It's well known. But I want to remind you, it's written for conflict. It's written for people who are full of themselves. All right. First point, very clearly made. Love is 
indispensable to all our gifts, all our activities, all our sacrifices. If it's not moved by a heart, moved by the love of God and the love for one another, he basically says it's spiritual bankruptcy. You just wasted your time. Now, if love is indispensable to all our service, what is it? Do you remember the Beatles back in uh, 67? Uh, they sang, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. Love is all you need. All you need is love. You know they never told us what love is. Or that other famous song by the Jefferson Airplane. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I have love in my tummy. Love in their tummy. What is that? You ever hear all these songs about love? There's thousands and thousands of songs about love. All you need is love. They never tell us what is love. Paul's going to tell you. He's going to use 15 descriptions. They're all verbs, what love does and what love does not do. Now, here's a real danger right now. The danger is getting through these 15 descriptions of love and concluding the chapter. I'll try to move these through as quickly as I can. If you're interested in them, just ask for the 15 descriptions of love where I can go through each one very thoroughly. There's nothing else like this, my dear friends. In all of literature, there's nothing like this that tells us what love is. So, let's begin here. Defining love. All right, A in your outline, describing the more excellent way of love. Now, remember the theme, the more excellent way. And it's not spiritual gifts. It's not knowledge. It's not prophetic word. The more excellent way is the love of Christ flowing through the heart of a believer. It's actually God's love flowing through us. Remember, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Thank you. It is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this love within us to serve others and to sacrifice ourselves and to give. First thing he says is love suffers long or love is patient. Love uh, um, is forbearing. Now, here's something interesting. If you were to say to the Lord, Lord, what is the most important quality of love? What's the first thing you want to say about love? He tells us right here. Love, the King James cannot be beat. Love suffers long. Love is forbearing. It's long-suffering. That's the first thing he says. But it's not only the first thing he says, he's going to repeat it several times, and he's going to end with this, this quality of love. Well, we can understand why this is such an important quality of love, because we live in a world that's full of problems and frustrations. How do you raise children over 20 years with a lot of patience? That's why you raise your children, not other people, because they would kill your children. But you love your children, and you're patient with them, and you can explain to them the reason they are so naughty right now is they didn't get enough sleep. If they only got a little more sleep, you'd see how nice they are. They're like demons. I mean, like angels. No, it's, it's our patience with them over 20 years dealing with all of their problems. We love them. The same thing is true in the local church and dealing with all kinds of people. If you lack this patience, you have a serious deficiency of love. 
We work with people, and working with people demands long-suffering, especially when they kick you in the face, or they don't respond to you, or they criticize you. Patience is needed for all of life's frustrations and hurts and injustices. Without patience, you will not make it. Now, the second thing he says here is love is kind. Now, love is patient, love is kind, two sides of the same coin. They must go together. One's the positive, one's the negative. William uh, Graham Scroggy says this about uh, kindness. You can no more have love without kindness than you can have springtime without flowers. Kindness, people have said, is love in work clothing. Kindness is such a marvelous virtue of love. Kindness is the readiness to do good, to help, to relieve a burden, to be youthful, to be served, to be merciful, to be tender, to be sympathetic towards others. Kindness is reaching out, carrying another person's burden. It's amazing how kindness can influence and affect people. A friend of mine had a job downtown in Denver with one of the very big companies, and the company was having terrible problems, and uh, the, all middle managers were very, very incompetent, and he was telling me that in the department he was in, he was a senior engineer, in this department, people, including himself, were taking uh, three-hour lunches, they were taking walks, purposely did not fix machines, uh, nothing much was being done, a lot of bad blood in the department, suspicion of one another, Finally, they realized the manager's got to go, and they, and they got rid of these managers, and they brought in a new manager over his department. First thing he did, took everyone to lunch. Then he had flowers for the ladies, little cards he wrote, met with each one individually. Tell me, how can we improve this? He put it back on them. Through many acts of kindness, he turned that whole department around. People were fixing broken machines. People were now taking hour lunches and then three-hour lunches. They weren't going and taking walks in the morning, walks of the day. And they were actually becoming a team. It was through his acts of kindness, helping them, working with them, giving them little notes, telling them how much he appreciated them. And together, we're going to build this department and turn it around. Kindness. It's powerful. It's an act of love. Love suffers long and love is kind, such a beautiful quality. Now, Paul does something very, very interesting here. Wouldn't expect to tell you the truth. He first starts with two positive qualities of love. Love is patient, love is kind, right? You would expect at this point he's going to follow through with all these positive statements, but he doesn't. At this point, he turns, and he turns to eight negative statements about love. Eight things love does not do. Why would he do this? I'd rather the positive. Now, of course, all these negative statements or vices as they're positive, and they'll be right here in your notes. The reason he turns to these eight negative statements is that these statements, these vices of jealousy and boasting, these vices were the very vices that were tearing the person apart, the church apart. Go back to chapter three, he talks about their jealousy, a lot about their boasting. So what he's going to do is show them love does not do these things. And all these things are the life of the selfish, self-oriented person. Every one of them. This is the example of love. Love is always outward uh, moving, outward seeking, outward giving. It's selflessness. 
self-sacrifice. Love is always attentive to the needs of others. I love that term. It's attentive to the needs of others. It's looking at others and what's best for them and their advantage. But these eight negative statements are all about me. It's all about what I want to do and how I want you to see me. Now, I'm going to have to just move through them very, very rapidly because we want to finish the entire chapter and you can get details later. All right, so the first thing he says, love curves the deadly vices that destroy loving fellowship. Love is not jealous. That's the first thing. It's a caption, by the way. Jealousy is a base human sin. It's a vice related to our selfishness. The jealous person does not want to see someone else be popular or have a better job or a nicer house. They're always thinking it's been taken away from me. Jealousy is a sin we see all through the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a sin that seems to be particularly common among the Lord's people. Instead, it delights in the betterment of others. You see, love does not get jealous because you make a better salary or you're much better looking than me or you've got nicer clothes and you drive a nice Mercedes and I drive a beat-up Volkswagen. No, love says, I am happy that you had that nice vacation. I am happy that you could have that car. I am so happy for you that you got this good job. I am so happy that you get up here and sing or that you're a better preacher. That's love. It, it advances others. Their betterment is something you rejoice over. Oh, jealousy is such a, it's such a petty, petty little sin. And then love does not brag. Love promotes others. You know what they say, empty trucks make the most noise. The Corinthians were famous for their bragging. By the way, that's a whole part of their Greco-Roman culture, bragging by putting up monuments to yourself all over. I was part of the ancient world. If I donated something, I would have a plaque. I would give all my titles, and then uh, you can read this uh, in uh, a certain book on, on, on uh, shared leadership. Joe Hellerman's book is very good. And he goes uh, in the ancient culture of Philippi and shows you how, how bragging about yourself was perfectly acceptable. You were the patron, they're the people that are the benefactors of the patronage, and you would brag of yourself. Well, the Corinthians were doing the same thing. They were bragging of their knowledge, bragging of their gifts. Then third, love is not arrogant. Love is humble. The word arrogant here is uh, the word puffed up, self-superior, and it is repeated six times in this uh, section uh, of the Corinthians because uh, this is what they were doing. They, were, they had a, a superiority complex. And a lot of it came back to this knowledge or higher experiences with God through tongues or through the word of knowledge. And it wasn't long before they were filled with himself. No, love has a lowly side to it, a littleness side. Love sees, love is modest. It, it, it does not just exalt itself. It sees self rightly before an absolutely infinite, uh, infinite God and a holy God we see our littleness and smallness. All right, love does not act inappropriately towards others. Ill-mannered impropriety, love promotes property core. This is interesting that when he talks about love, this is very practical. He's talking here about courtesy, politeness. Uh, he's talking about following proper customs. Love 
is concerned about proper politeness and decorum. You know, starting somewhere in the early 70s, we had what was called on the radio the shock jocks. And I remember flying back to New Jersey and this was happening. And my friend who picked me up said, you got to hear these guys. I'd never heard them before. I won't mention their names. But they were saying the most gross, the most crude things and getting away with it. Uh, they put you off the, the, the radio 10 years before and they pushed the envelope as far as they could. With, most of it was just filth, filthy talk. Shock jocks. But you know what happens? The whole society picks up on that. And you become a rude, coarse, put down other people, particularly women. No, love is very interested in proper decorum, proper uh, policy, how things should be done in society. Is concerned about little things, even how you dress, how you deal with other people. All right, love is not selfish. Of course, that's sort of the heart of it, isn't it? Love cannot be selfish because love is other-oriented. It promotes self-giving. Love is of the giving variety, not the getting variety. Then he says, love is not easily provoked to anger. Oh, this is a good one here. It's not irritable. It's not touchy. You know, you, it's like uh, three pastors were out with this, this theologian from uh, a seminary. It's actually Haddon Robinson. And uh, they were at the table, and the, the server poured water accidentally over one of the pastor's suits, nice suit. And the pastor got so angry, you stupid person, you shouldn't even be working if you can't, and just lit into the server. The server was just totally embarrassed. So after she leaves, Haddon Robinson leans over and says, let's witness to her now. <laughs> twice on an airplane, twice on the same flight, I had a man dump his wine on my suit. Twice. <laughs> Not once, twice. Wine all over me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get to the place that is a wine bibber. Can't get off the plane without the smell of wine all over him. Well, we just made a joke of it and laughed at it. And I said, well, after the first one, it doesn't really matter. You do it again. You see, love is not touchy. It's not irritable. It's not cranky. Oh, dads, be careful of this. Some of the times with our children, we're so irritable and cranky and we get, we're easily provoked. No, love is calm and it's slow to anger. Love does not keep records of wrongs suffered. In other words, doesn't have a file drawer full of all the hurts and wounds that has happened to me throughout life. You ever been with people that keep bringing up what you did to them 40 years ago? 40 years ago, you said this about me. I know, we've apologized. I've written you a letter. But they keep bringing it up. They just can't let go. They hold grudges. They have a record. They have a very clear record of every wound and hurt someone gave me. Well, that's totally self-centeredness. No, love forgives, love lets go, love forgets. Eight here, love does not delight in wrongdoing. Actually, love does not delight of evil of any kind. You hear of a country that we're maybe having a conflict with and you hear an earthquake and thousands die and you go, good, they deserve it. Well, this verse says, love does not rejoice in evil of any kind, hurt of any kind. Most of those people have nothing to do with the problems we're dealing with. But it rejoices with truth. Truth here has the idea of righteous behavior, good moral behavior. It rejoices with all that is good. 
All right, then he ends with uh, love, the tenacious quality of love. Love, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This picks up on the first one. Love suffers long. It's forbearing. There's a toughness. There's a tenacity to love. There's a story told, this man, three strikes you're out in California, and uh, he wound up uh, in prison for life, just a young man. And after a short while in prison, his friends forgot him, his father forgot him. He was a man unknown to the world, stuck behind bars the rest of his life, except for one person, his mother. Every Saturday, she got on a bus, two-hour ride to the prison, spent an hour with him, Get on the bus, two-hour home. During the week, she'd write him a letter every other day, send nice goodies and things for him to read. It's tough. It's tenacious. It bears all things. It, It endures all things. That mother's love could not be halted by prison walls or long distance. She loved her son and a great personal sacrifice to herself cared for him when she could have walked away from him and said, well, he's getting what he deserves. No, love bears all things. Love bears up under the heaviest load of life's problems and sufferings. Love can carry enormous weight. It perseveres, believes, and, and, and it hopes all things. This goes along with the idea of bearing the heavy load of life and the problems. Why? Because it believes. It's not naive. It believes, it trusts. You look at Paul with the Corinthians. He said, I knew you would turn around. That's his hope. That was his belief. All the problems created with the Corinthians. And he says, I knew you would turn around. Uh, You're such a blessing to us. So, love is indispensable. This is what love looks like. Fifteen verbs, actions, negative and positive of what we're talking about. Ultimately, all this refers to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice of himself for others. He gave himself. Just one quick story. Before he goes to the cross to give himself totally for us, bearing our sin, our judgment, our wrath, He kneels down and cleans the dirty feet of his disciples. And they get, they get upset with the whole thing. And he says, I've shown you an example. You do the same thing. He washes their feet, and then he'll wash their soul. Why? Self-giving. Self-giving, that's love. Thinking of others, the advantage of others, the good of others. Not thinking of self first, but others first. Now, let's look at the last part of this section. Uh, Love never ends. Love never ends. Let me just uh, read this to you very, very uh, rapidly here. Uh, Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes or the completeness comes, the partial will be done away. Okay. Now, this section is a little difficult, and great expositors have different opinions about it. Let me just give you the general idea, which is clear, and I think a tool to help you interpret this. The general idea is right there in verse 8. Always watch for a caption or an overarching idea that will actually help you interpret the rest of the passage. 
What is the overarching idea? I'm going to show you a more excellent way. It's the overarching. Now, in this little section, here's the overarching idea. Love never ends. Love is permanent. It'll never become obsolete. But now listen carefully. Love is permanent now, in this age, right now, and in the age to come. So there's this contrast between the now and the eternal, the future. And his point will be this. Tongues and knowledge and prophecy and all the gifts are for now only. Love is for now and eternity. It's the greatest of all. And that's what they have to learn. That's why it's the more excellent way. All these other things are temporary. They're temporal. This is eternal. All right. With that in mind, we can walk through this passage here. Note the contrast. There's contrast here. All right. Love never ends. That's our key statement. We'll never become obsolete. When this age is over and the new age starts, love will be right there. Love is a characteristic of heaven. God is love. Never says God is faith, God is hope, God is prophecy. God is love, it can be said. All right, so let's walk through it now. As for prophecies, they will pass away. They're going to be abolished. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Why? It's temporary. It's for now. It's not for eternity. Only love is for eternity. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Everything we do is incomplete. Everything. We don't have it all together. Someday we will, but not now. But when the perfect comes, the perfect or the completeness comes, that is the coming of Christ and what comes with that. Not just the coming of Christ, but the coming of Christ and the state of affairs. The, coming, the perfect is the face-to-face. We'll read about it in just a second. Okay? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Notice this idea. Passes away. It's abolished. It's only that. When I was a child, I I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. No problem. When I became a man, I I gave up childish ways. Contrast again. Childish season of life. That's what all these gifts are, spirit gifts. And then the, the mature, a fully grown man. That's the completion. When the completion comes, when the perfect comes. It's an analogy. It's not a clear analogy to most of us, but it's an analogy of the imperfect and the perfect. The immature, the mature. All right, he'll go on now. and get, It makes it a little clearer. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly. <clears throat> Corinth was known for its bronze mirrors. But then, now, You've got to get the now and the then. The now and the then. You see that? Verse 12. Now we see, then face to face. That's a key to understanding what he's talking about. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what he says here, when I look into a bronze mirror, it's never direct. It's indistinct. But someday, when it comes, then face to face. It's the difference between looking at a photograph and looking at someone's face. We're going to have a face-to-face encounter with Christ. 
The mature comes. The completion comes. We're going to have knowledge like God has it, which is I am fully known by God. Well, then I'm going to have that kind of knowledge that God has fully known. It's not going to be partial anymore. It's not going to be all these mysteries. Face-to-face encounter, and we're going to know fully as we should know, just as God knows us now. Now, verse 13. Now, all this flows together because verse 13, although it looks very obvious, has a problem. But keep noticing, now, then, now, then. So now, faith, hope, and love abide or remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's a little hard to understand exactly what he's saying here. You'll have good scholars on both sides. You'll have scholars saying faith, hope, and love go into eternity, but love is the greatest of them. Or you have scholars who say, no, faith and hope are only now. It's only love that goes into eternity. That's why it is the greatest. I lean towards that view. So, spiritual gifts, now, in part, it is not permanent. What are you getting all excited about this? The more excellent way is the eternal way, the permanent way, the way of God, it's love. You've got it all mixed up. You're emphasizing these temporary, short, impartial, incomplete gifts. But love is permanent. God is love. Heaven is a home of love. It'll be characterized. That's why I end here in the notes. Heaven's a home of love. Jonathan Edwards, um, Charity and its Fruits, the most magnificent thing you've ever read. What is a home of love? A paradise of love. Everyone loves each other perfectly. We love God perfectly and the angels perfectly. What could that even be? None of these inhibitions or little um, uh, sins and vices that we uh, hurt each other's relationship. What could it be to be in a paradise of love? Because God is love. And then he goes on to the glories of heaven. Well, this is this magnificent chapter. Love is permanent. It will never end. It will characterize us and God throughout all eternity. And nothing will change that. All these things now, things that sometimes we get all caught up with, they're only temporary for a short little time. And even what we have, we don't even have in its completeness. Love is the more excellent way. If you don't know that way, please come up and talk to me because Christ wants to indwell your life and give you the Holy Spirit and the first fruit of the Holy Spirit of God living inside you is love, God's love in you. Let us close in prayer. Lord God, we give thanks for this tremendous chapter and just filled with deep truth, so much truth about how to live properly, how to relate to people properly, there's anyone here today who does not know the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in love came down to this earth, suffered for us and died for us, and offers to us the wonderful gift of eternal life, sins forgiven, heaven is ours, adoption into the family of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit. May they hear and believe today. Point them to Jesus, who is love. We ask these things in his powerful name. Amen.